All right, as you're pulling your mobile phones out and looking at your Bibles, or if you have a physical Bible with you, you'll be turning to Mark chapter 11. And uh, if you would, join me in a word of prayer. God, it is amazing that, that we get to join the legion of angels and the hosts that have gone before us in your throne room, that you've invited us, your children, to, to be with you and to hear your word, and that you hear us, that you, you, you live for and you love the voices of your children celebrating your greatness and reminding our hearts with those words of, of what you want to do with us. But even more than that, we wait for the scroll to be opened. We sit in anticipation for this ancient word to speak a, a modern truth. And that you would direct our hearts, that you would turn our minds to your truth. And open us in such a way that we would be changed by your word today. That we would believe, even right now, that you can move mountains you can take those dead places in our hearts and resurrect them as you've done so faithfully in so many, uh, on, at, at so many times. And that we read on the pages of Scripture. Apply those truths even, even to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 11 holds a couple of the most familiar uh, stories about Jesus in all of the New Testament. And so when people, think of, when people think of Jesus, whether they're churched or unchurched, most people globally, and I've, I've kind of been around the world, uh, most people are familiar with Jesus at least a little bit. So when people think about Jesus, a few pictures come to mind. Most people, when they think of him... Uh, uh, Bring to mind the picture of Jesus walking on water. That's, that's a famous one. Jesus dying on the cross. That's another famous one. We, have some, uh, we just celebrated Easter, and so uh, that's, that's a picture that people are pretty familiar with. But Mark chapter 11 holds two of, of the other most famous pictures of the triumphant entry, which is at the beginning of Mark chapter 11, and then this strange, even, dare we say, crazy picture, act of Jesus in going into the temple and tossing over the tables and throwing a bunch of people out of the temple. It's a story that people are, are pretty familiar with and I would say uh, a little bit confused by. I think we, uh, we like the picture, especially the dudes in the audience, that, that Jesus' masculinity in this picture like it kind of draws us in and, and impresses us. We like to tell the story, but we have to admit that this seems a little bit out of character. That for uh, the rest of the Gospels, Jesus is, uh, Jesus is the servant of people. He's, he's got a compassionate look on his face. He's caring. He's kind. And so when Jesus goes into the temple and kind of just goes crazy, we look at that and think, as much as I like that, that's a little bit confusing, especially coming, coming on the heels of the Jesus who's just been essentially crowned as king. And we'll get into the story in just a second. 
Jesus is crowned as king, and then he goes into the temple and, and literally tears some stuff up. But we live in a day and age when the rise and fall of people in power is lived out literally before our eyes. Like we see, we see a, a, a young aspiring star uh, with his mom posting a, a rough shot video in the living room. And before we know it, he's got a stadium full of people. We sit in anticipation. We love, we love this stadium full of people and a bank account full of money. Like this person has come to almost immediate power. And we wait on the edge of our seat in anticipation of what comes next. Because we know before too long, that person is going to go crazy. And we're watching the news, and we're seated on our phones, and uh, the, the, midnight, uh, the, the midnight drunken car crash or the hotel room that's completely destroyed. We see it with celebrities, and we see it with politicians. And we have the phrase, uh, the, the well-known phrase, that, that power corrupts money and power, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the question that we have today is, when Jesus goes into the temple and he throws everything up, is he going crazy, or is there something else going on in Mark chapter 11? So we've seen Jesus through the rest of the Gospels. We've seen Jesus as the compassionate healer, as the approachable coach, as the eternal friend, as people drawn near to Jesus. And you remember the phrase that we've used through uh, the rest of our studies, that if you want to know what God is like, Look at Jesus. Jesus shows us God with skin on him, right? He shows us what God would do if he were right here in front of us. And we've seen him in all those other scenarios, and we've fallen in love with Jesus. But today we see Jesus with power. And we ask the question, what is God like as our king? With that kind of authority, what, does, what will he do with that power. So if you join me in a reading of Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, we'll start out with, the, with Jesus's, I'll call it his coronation. So now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt or a donkey tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Why are you stealing my, my animal here? If anyone says, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So I don't know. This is kind of a weird scene. I have to imagine that, that there's some sort of a vision or a dream that God spoke to this person and said, hey, just give, give your donkey away. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Why are you taking my animal and untying the colt? And they said to them, Jesus had said, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloak on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches uh, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before those who had followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. 
So we, we celebrate the triumphant entry of Jesus with palm branches. You remember every, some of you tripped on the palm branches when you came into the auditorium a few, a few weeks ago. But this is, this is a powerful and an emotional scene where Jesus is uh, recognized not necessarily for the first time, but as far as coming into Jerusalem, recognized as, as the chosen king of Israel. And people are amazed and they're excited. And I say that this isn't the first time because in, earlier in the story in John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the, the 5,000, they tried to take Jesus by force and make him king, but Jesus said, it's not my time yet. But you have to imagine that when Jesus sent the, the disciples, he kind of, the, the, the emotion was high and people were already thinking that he would be a great leader, especially in contrast to, uh, to the, leaders, the religious leaders and even the political leaders of his day. But Jesus kind of set them up with this whole cult donkey thing. And even though in our day when we think of a, a political figure coming into a town or into a city, we shut down streets, and they, they come in with all the pomp and circumstance. I mean, they're, they're riding in very expensive, expensive bulletproof vehicles and riding in planes that are millions and millions of dollars. But in their day, their political leaders, whether it was princes or kings, came in uh, wanting to, uh, to show a posture of humility. And so this donkey scene really was kind of the spark that ignited the fire in the hearts of the people who already wanted Jesus to rise to power. And he comes in with this sign riding humbly on the back of this colt. And as he came in, in, in ordinary fashion, everywhere Jesus went, the news about him spread. We've read that in the book of Mark. And the crowds would gather. And now when the crowds gather, they're always in anticipation. What's Jesus going to do? Who's he going to heal? What's he going to say? And there he comes in. Imagine in your mind's eye come, coming in with the posture of a king. And they, the crowds go wild. They're taking their clothes off and throwing it at, at the feet of the donkey as it's, as it's trampling along. They're cutting their... Uh, the, the trees and laying the branches out is extremely emotional scene. And uh, aside from our topic today, one of the things that, uh, that you, you have to know in, in this picture, if you can think of the context, that these guys, they're recognizing Jesus as king. And I say recognizing on purpose because they're not electing Jesus. The people aren't aren't setting Jesus up. They're not choosing him. They're recognizing him for who he is. That's important because in a couple of chapters, in just a few days, that same group of people that are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be crying out another phrase, crucify him. Same people. Few days separated. The idea is this. Now, we can't trust our emotions, and I really want you to get this, even though this is a little bit of a side note. We can't trust our emotions, that whether you feel like Jesus is king or not doesn't change the reality that Jesus is king. You don't, we often say, accept Jesus into your heart, you know, choose the right path. You don't choose Jesus' authority and his king. He is. Jesus is Hosanna. He is king. He has endowed on him, not by people, not by elections, not by choice. 
Jesus has that authority over your life and over mine. So if we are looking at Jesus and we see in in Jesus, we see what God is like, now we have a completely different picture than this accessible friend, the compassionate healer. Now Jesus essentially, without a crown, somebody's going to come in and say they didn't put a crown on his head, but essentially Jesus has been crowned as, uh, as the rightful king. And we have to ask the question, what will God do with his authority? What will Jesus do now that he has that kind of authority and power? Well, if you continue reading, Jesus leaves that place. The disciples have to be like, finally, man. It's been, a, it's been a journey up and down following Jesus, and all of a sudden, now they're going to get what they, what, they, what they got into this for. Man, they're going to have the ability, not that they were prideful, but they're going to have the ability to really make some lasting change. Because Jesus is in a field, and Jesus is on the side of the mountain. really doesn't seem like somebody who's going to be able to move the real uh, political issues of their day. And there were some serious political issues in their day. But now Jesus is going to be able to do what they always wanted him to do. They leave that place, and it says that Jesus goes into the temple, 11 and 12. And Jesus goes into the temple, but it's late. It doesn't, there's no emotion in this, in this part. Emotion comes later. It's late, and so he leaves that place. And the next thing that happens is apparently Jesus slept. I don't think he slept, to be honest. I think he stirred all night. I think he walked around pacing back and forth. And it says that... On their way back, what we find to the temple, on their way back, Jesus passes this fig tree and curses it. You can read it for yourself. It's, it's this berserk scene. And I was like, let, let this soak in. Jesus, is, as he's passing this fig tree, it doesn't have figs on it. And what you need to know is this isn't fig season, so this makes it even crazier doesn't have figs on it, and Jesus stops, and he's looking at the fig tree, and he says, because, you, because you're not giving me what I need or I want right now, I curse you for all of eternity. You're never going to produce another fig. At first glance, this is maybe the most relatable thing that Jesus has ever done, okay? But I finished my basement out this past year, and if, if my tools could talk, if the two-by-fours two could tell stories, they would say, they would line up and say, at one time or another, I have been cursed for all of, all of eternity, every last one of us. Because this is kind of a guy thing to do, right? We blame the inanimate object for our own mistakes or our own frustration. We take it out on the thing before us. We hit our thumb, and it's the hammer's fault. <laughs> I curse you for all of eternity. But that's not what's happening here. Whatever it was that Jesus saw, and I love the way Mark tells the story because Jesus doesn't tell us what he saw. And then all of a sudden, he's with this tree, with this fig tree. And the emotion of what Jesus experienced in the temple, what he witnessed in the temple, comes out on that tree. And what you need to know about fig trees is that throughout biblical history, the fig tree had, had been symbolic of what God wanted Israel to be to the nations. Like this idea, I don't, I don't really love figs. I would rather like an orange tree or a pear tree, something like that. But nonetheless, that all the nations would come to Israel and taste 
the, of the sweetness of God. So I want you to get this. Whatever Jesus saw in the temple, when he sees the fig tree, it becomes symbolic of what he experienced there. And that, that is the barrenness of Israel. We find out in just a minute what, what that actually is. But that Israel was supposed to be the place where the nations come and experience and taste the sweetness of God. And with this tree, Jesus says, that's not the case. Israel is offering nothing to the nations. And this symbolic scene that Jesus curses the tree is actually cursing the nation. I'm going to pull back and I'm going to say this a couple of different times. This is not Jesus cursing a person. This isn't Jesus taking his frustration out on, on a, a, a guy or a gal, a follower who hasn't, hasn't carried their weight, is having a difficult season. This is the symbolic picture of really the religious state of Israel that Jesus, and we see the picture of God, is taking his anger and frustration out on it. And I say that because we have a tendency when, when we're experiencing failure to feel like God is going to take that kind of anger out on me. And I'm, I'm not against the wrath of God. But in this case, the wrath of God and the wrath of Jesus is out on the state of Israel. The grief in his heart that what Israel was supposed to be for the nation just is not the case. So then Jesus goes into the temple and we see spelled out exactly what's going on. In verse 15 through 19, it says this, And they came to Jerusalem... And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who, here's the picture, who sold and those who bought in the temple. I'm going to explain this in just, just a second because this is a little bit confusing. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So this it gets a little bit clearer. The money changers and, the, and those who are selling pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple to have their commerce. And he was teaching them, saying, this is a short sermon, not my sermon, this sermon. He was teaching them, saying, it is, not, uh, is it not written, my house, and this is, the, this is really the picture of the fig tree, uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. The sweetness of God should be experienced by the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, were seeking a way to destroy him. They were already conniving in their hearts how they were going to get rid of this guy who was messing up their, their gig, for they feared him. They feared that he was going to take something away from them, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, they went out of the city. I think as much as we're impressed by the flex of Jesus, this is kind of that CrossFit picture, by the flex of Jesus, he's overturning tables, and I've heard sermons, and people say, well, the reason why Jesus was able to do this is because he grew up as a carpenter, and he was probably pretty buff. And we've stuck that in the 80s. You remember they stuck that on T-shirts? Like, he loves you this much, and you've got the, the total flexed, veiny picture of, of Jesus. Whether that's the case or not, I mean, I don't know how heavy the tables were. I know they weren't plastic tables. But we get a little, I mean, as much as we're impressed, it is, if you can admit with me, a little bit of a confusing scene. The what kind of gets lost in our misunderstanding of the why. And 
I'm, I see some faces here who probably grew up in a day uh, that, like my high school church, debated on whether you could have Coke machines and garage sales on church property. Yeah, you can you can hear that. And I'm serious, like major debates. We couldn't sell T-shirts in the youth room because Jesus didn't want that kind of stuff happening, right? He would come over and turn our, our tables over, and there were some like serious debates about this total misunderstanding of what, what was going on. So when you the money changers and the pigeons, I'm going to paint this scene for you. That annually, every year. Families would travel to the temple from far off places in order to offer their sacrifices to God. They'd bring their animals, they'd load them up, they would take their, their produce and put it in their carts, and they would, they would go over some of the roughest terrain for days and days and weeks and weeks. And when they arrived at the temple, let's say for the first time, they arrived at the temple for the first try, time, Weary from their journey, their animals a little bit uh, travel-worn, their produce not as fresh as it was when they set out, but they're excited to be in the presence of God. They want to taste the sweetness of God. This experience was something that they had longed for, that they believed they were created for. But then they came to the first checkpoint in the temple. The first table, they were inspected and rejected. I want you to get this scene. They were inspected. Their animals were inspected because, after all, God deserves the best. Without blemish, perfect sacrifices. They were inspected and rejected with a, look at my face, with a wink, wink to the next table. The next table had, they can't offer those sacrifices. Those animals aren't good enough. So they're moved to the next table that has the pigeons, which is a downgraded or poor man's sacrifice that is then sold to them at a markup. This is buying Coke at the amusement park. Now you're getting a 50-cent Coke for $5. Imagine the feeling. Imagine the diminishment of that excitement that people had when they came to the temple to experience the beauty of God. Feel the emotion of Jesus. Then to buy the pigeon at a markup, their money wasn't good there because they came from far off places. So they go to the money changers table and their money is exchanged at a terrible rate. So they're losing money there they're getting a downgraded sacrifice so that by the, by the time they come into the presence of God, they're, they've, been, they've been fleeced and they're frustrated. They've been demoralized. You're not good enough. And they're disillusioned. When they come into the presence of God, they just feel sick. I want to go take a shower after this whole experience. Kind of like I feel right now. You see the picture? Jesus walks in the day before, sees what's going on. He knew what was going on. But sees it in real time. And then when he walks into the temple to do something about it, the emotion 
of what sh- the contrast of what should be happening. Thank God for this shade. We say a prayer that that stays right there for a few minutes. Maybe that'll signal when I'm done, <laughs> when the cloud moves on. We're going to preach until, until the sun comes back out. Of what should be happening, tasting the beauty and grace, the sweetness of the presence of God, and the look on people's faces as they're disillusioned and dejected. So what does Jesus do with his power? The crowned king, where does he focus his energy? The turning over of the tables and the driving out, and even his sermon, what he states. Once you go, this, is, this is the first point. There's two things, but this is the first point. What does Jesus do with his power? He makes a way for us to be in the presence of God. Where the religious leaders of their day... Jesus says, heap burdens on people's backs. They complicate uh, the re- people's relationship, if you could even call it that. They complicate people's relationship with God with rules upon rules upon rules. They put obstacles in the way and ruin the sweetness of the presence of God. But what does Jesus do? He's not just flexing. Hear this, because this comes right this comes right into I was gonna say the sanctuary, into this courtyard. No, I'm not about to be done. The sun's out. I can see your faces. He fights for you. He fights for you to be in the presence of God. He flexes so that you're able to experience the sweetness of God. He moves mountains so that you're able to have a relationship with God. And there's something in our spirit that fears or believes that there are a lot of steps between us and the presence of God that overcomplicates what it is to be in a relationship with God. I want you to see this picture of Jesus, what he fights for. He's moving things out of the way to make a path, to fight for a way for you and me, for all people, all nations, to be in the presence of God. And this is so like him. I mean, you take his prayer in John chapter 17, and you can go back and read that later. This famous unity prayer that they may all be one that Jesus is agonizing in prayer, but he ends that prayer with that. Let's move everything out of the way. That they may be, everybody, you, your children, your community, that they may be with me as I am with you. What does Jesus say uh, in in Matthew? Uh, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll make you more weary. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. See the picture of Jesus, people coming to him. He's sitting at the table. This is who God is, sitting at the table with Jesus, painting the picture of where does God want you. He wants you at the table with him. Even more than that, I think this mighty picture in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, like he sacrificed everything. Go back and read that. 
He sacrificed everything to bring you to God. Those words. He's on a retrieval mission in the Gospels and even today. Not just to make a way, but to bring you to God. To take you, to carry you. This is a picture of the, uh, the shepherd that leaves the 99 and hoists the sheep up on its shoulders. How much does God want to be with you? How much does he want you to be in his presence? Enough for Jesus to go and risk everything to throw the tables over. Drive a bunch of people out. Because he wants you in his presence. Let that speak to your soul when you think God doesn't want me. Whatever it is, the nastiness, the sin, the mistake, or just your own self-confidence. But God wants you. Jesus, in this demonstrative picture, shows exactly that. That's the first thing that Jesus does with this power, is he makes a way for us to be with God. But the second thing is in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 22 to 25, the disciples have to be a, a little bit, well, they've experienced this before, Jesus calms the storm and then they fear him. Imagine how they might have felt when Jesus did that. Of course, they're thinking, man, they've, Jesus has only been king for a day and now he's gone and done this. Like, everybody's going to be mad. But they're looking at him and thinking, this guy that we didn't think had much power has a lot of power. He's, he's a little bit. Still, even though the scene is is neat, he's still a little bit crazy. They're probably a little bit nervous with him. And as they're walking by, it says that they leave that place in verse 20 and 21. They leave that place, and uh, they're kind of processing this thing, and they walk by the fig tree that brings it back in. Walk by the fig tree, and they say, Master, teacher, look, the tree's dead. (laughs) They're amazed. I'm baffled at how baffled they are i mean jesus has walked on water he's raised dead kids from uh from death it's not that far-fetched for jesus to kill a tree right but that's neither here nor there we see this second picture of what jesus does with his power in verse 22 And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Here's frustration. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And And whenever you stand praying, forgive if anyone has anything against anyone, so that, oh, forgive, so that if anyone has anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. So we're not going to go into uh, the whole uh, believing prayer, um, uh, name it, claim it theology this morning because it kind of fits on the outside of the text but i do want to offer a point of clarity when jesus says whatever you ask in my name as long as you believe you'll have it he's not talking about praying for a i'm going to disappoint you he's not talking about praying for a porsche so if the, if that's kind of where where you were hoping this is going to go if you kind of name it and claim it 
what I really, I would like to shift your mind, whether you agree or disagree. I'm about to excite a bunch of people and disappoint a bunch of others. If you want to pour us, pray for it, and we'll, we'll see what happens. But this is in the context of mission and ministry. That when we talk about moving mountains, I'm not, I'm not sold on the fact that Jesus wants his disciples to feel empowered to take these inanimate objects and move them. That's never been in the character of Jesus. But in the spirit of or in the context of mission and ministry, as you join Jesus in his work, there are, and you've experienced this, some of you, some of you even today, this morning, it's like the, un, the immovable thing is a child that you've agonized over, that you've, that you've sweat drops of, of blood over, that you've wept over to come to know Jesus. It's more in the spirit of that that Jesus says, whatever you pray, like his heart is for mission ministry and redemption and i think that's why in the end when he's talking about forgiveness it may be the un, the the Im, the mountain in your prayers is someone who can't forgive you or someone whom you can't forgive i'm, I'm stretching it just a little bit but the, there's a context jesus is as he's talking he's not talking about porsches or houses as much as he brings into this picture Brings into this scene forgiveness. That's what's, that's, that's what's in his mind. Redemption, forgiveness, mission. And the idea is this, that every single one of us sitting here today, and if you've never heard this, that God has a purpose for your life, and that purpose, at the core of that purpose, is for you to join him in his redemptive mission in your world, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your home, that God has a mission for you. And in that mission, I've been in ministry long enough to, to have, have seen the immovable, the unreachable people. So what Jesus wants is for your heart to turn to that person. Now, you have one of those right now. I know some of your stories, that one may be in your home, the immovable. Jesus wants you. Name it. Yeah. Claim it. What is the heart of Jesus? He wants to move mountains. The most significant things are there anyway for people to know Jesus for eternity. Can I hear amen? Some of you want the poor, so you didn't say amen. <laughs> but our purpose uh, this morning feels like this afternoon. But our purpose this morning is for the second thing that Jesus does with his power. So in contrast to the religious leaders of Jesus' day who hoarded their power and held people down. I mean, Herod went so far as if, if there was a threat of someone coming to any sort of power in his circumference was known for, like, taking those people out. This, this is what they knew, that the, the chief, that the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they made people feel small and hoarded all of the power. What does Jesus do? Like They're amazed when they look and see that this tree has been withered. And Jesus says, hold on. Like you see the religious leaders of the day, look at me. Look how powerful I am. Look at what I've got. What does Jesus do? He gives it away. 
This is so contrasting, both to our world and even in Jesus' world. He gives it. He distributes. Jesus empowers. But this is in character of what Jesus has done all along. He called this group of, of rabbinic, rabbinical school washouts, which is what the, the apostles originally were. They didn't make the cut to get in rabbi school, or they flunked out. They were flunkies. Jesus chooses that group to come be with him. And what does he do? He gives them their identity. He, he elevates uh, their lives. He equips them, empowers them, and then sends them. One of those guys, Peter, who was not even the highest ranked at times of the disciples, in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, what does Jesus call you? What does God call you? He calls you to be kings and priests. He wants to elevate your identity, empower you, and send you like the we have he makes a way and he gives it away that's what jesus wants to do in your life and in mine with his power it's no wonder people followed him no wonder the crowds were waiting at the gate no wonder their hearts leapt at his every word. Because Jesus is so different than everybody else. He's fighting for the people. And he's fighting, listen folks, he's fighting for you. Jesus empowered the people. He shows us what God does. God wants to give you that kind of power in your life, over your mountains, against all odds, to join him in his mission. That's what God wants to do with you. The chapter ends with a conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders. After all this has happened, at the crown, at the temple scene, they want to take him out. Jesus has his disciples. He's telling them he's going to do great things through and with them. So the, the religious leaders call Jesus, and they have this, this conversation with him where they say, where does your authority come from? There's two ways to, to take this, this question. One is they want to catch Jesus uh, in a self-incriminating comment because they're looking for a way to kill him. But the other is, and this brings us all the way back to Jesus' coronation, where does your authority come from? Because they spend all of their time and energy trying to get power. They, they had all of their resources to keep their power. And you got this guy from nowhere that spends no energy trying to keep or get power. And yet he has it. This is the scene. They didn't choose Jesus to be king. They didn't give him his authority. The people, whether they liked him or didn't like him, whether they elect, thought that they could elect him or reject him, couldn't take his authority away from him. What this, I want to speak to, to our hearts today. That Jesus' authority and his power comes from a place other than this world. It was endowed to him by God. That truth should change the way we feel. Actually, it should take take our feelings 
and put them in the back seat of the way we see our world and the way we see our relationship with God. That Jesus is. No matter what's going on in the world today, Jesus is. No matter what's going on in our life or even the way we feel about our relationship with God, Jesus is. He has authority. He has power. Philippians chapter 2 says that at the end of time, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and confess the name of Jesus. The beautiful thing is that who Jesus is, who God made him to be, that power is at work in your life and in mine. And this is where this is where my acceptance really t- has relevance. That his power is at work in my life. And he wants me to welcome, he wants you to welcome him to make a way for us to be in relationship with Jesus. And I would say, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, if you, if you came into this place, if somebody invited you and you don't know who Jesus is, this is the picture of Jesus. He wants to make a way for you to have salvation. He wants to make a way for you to be with God. That's the biggest picture. And he wants to give you. He wants to elevate you and give you power as well. Can I hear amen? All right, if you would join me in a prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray for, for anyone here today that has a false pic has no picture of Jesus, that this, this would be the picture. This would be the picture that occupies their minds of who you are, Jesus. That your earnest desire and your greatest might is exerted on bringing us to God. If we have a false picture of somehow God creating obstacles for us to have a relationship with you, I pray that you would, you would speak against those things, that you would move those mountains and let us see you for who you are. I pray for those of us who sit here and long for a purpose in our lives, that we would be caught up in your mission, that we would choose today to join you in your work and receive from you the power to move mountains. We pray in Jesus' name.